is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hi, you all, and welcome to today's episode on Homestead Education. Today, Angela and Mandy here, of course. And today, we are going to cover everything relating seed starting. But not just the surface level when you hear the word seed starting, right? You know, plop a seed in some dirt and and say a little happy dance over it and and hope it grows. But there is some specifications and things that we hope to help you with in order to make this next gardening season a good one. Yeah, for sure. I think... First and foremost, there is no shame and nothing wrong with going to a garden center or a hardware store and starting plants from seedlings that you purchase that have already been started for you. It's a perfectly fine way to grow vegetables and produce. But um, one of the biggest reasons that uh, I think Mandy and myself included decide to grow our own plants from a seed is because it gives us a little more control over the varieties that we're choosing. So we aren't limited to what the nursery or the hardware store is providing us with, which are usually going to be top selling items like red bell peppers, green bell peppers. They're not going to have necessarily an orange, a yellow or a chocolate bell pepper or a purple. So we can offer our own um kitchens, a wider range of ingredients and harvests when we start our plants from seeds. I understand that it can be a little daunting though. So Mandy and I, we have a whole list literally sitting in front of us right now of all of the things we're going to talk about when it comes to knowing the difference between seed types, how you actually go about buying them and putting them in soil. There's different ways to do it. I think we should just start sort of demystifying the different types of seeds to clear up confusion. Because I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding the little acronyms and the, and the verbiage on a seed packet, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can get really kind of just confused if you are, if you read, you know, open pollinated, GMO, non-GMO. It's like, whoa, um, I thought that there were just seeds, right? But there right. are differences. Um, and in order to you know, really understand the nature and nurture of the plant, it, it is good to know. So um, like Angela said, we kind of have just this, this sheet that we have, you know, studied and, and researched in front of us. And I think we'll just dive right in. So the main ones that we see a lot of the times, are I think probably the most popular uh, word, <laughs> even surrounding, I guess, tomatoes specifically in the homestead community is heirloom. So you hear that word all the time, an uh, heirloom tomato. So Ange, why don't you explain what heirloom means just in general? Sure. So as you might hear the word heirloom describe anything, it's something, it's an item that's been passed down from generation to generation. The really great thing about an heirloom seed or an heirloom crop is that it's been grown for generations and it has stood the test of time. If, and a lot of um, nonprofit organizations such as Seed Savers Ex- Exchange, they provide this information. If the seed seller can give you and equip you with the information about where that seed originated from, you could grow nothing in theory but heirloom crops that originated in your specific growing zone. And the reason that's advantageous is because those plants are then naturally adapted to survive in your climate, in your weather conditions. So if you live in a drought tolerant climate, um, or excuse me, a, a drought climate, it's going to be so beneficial to you as the gardener and save you so much work if you can get your hands on drought tolerant crops that originated in your area. And so we look to heirloom seeds, not just because they tend to be incredibly hardy, but also because they are well adapted and they are going to be trustworthy uh, plants to grow. With that in mind, because they've been saved from generation to generation, 
it's worth noting that you can save seeds from these crops. So if you grow an heirloom tomato, you absolutely can take seeds from that tomato and um, dry them out, package them properly, and you can absolutely grow them next year. So they are strong seed choices to choose from. Yeah, and you you bring up a good point about the naturally adapted to the environment, and I know we're not going to get into it, but it, it's it's very important just in general in gardening. Garlic is one thing that kind of comes to my mind with, um, you know, going and just buying a certain variety. Certain varieties thrive better in certain regions of the country. So being able to know that with an heirloom seed or an heirloom plant that it is naturally adapted to the environment that you live in it's just kind of like a leg up. Um, it just puts you in the the right position from, from the get go. Uh, then, then we kind of go down the line and another, uh, type of seed that you will see often, you'll also see them in just seedlings at most every single nursery across the country are hybrid seeds. So those are a little bit different. Those are seeds that are intentionally bred, like in isolation. So that sounds so funny, but there are actually places that will cross two plants together in a controlled setting. So not out in the open um, to get that specific seed or a specific plant. So the reason we really do this uh, as a whole is to kind of just build up the the strength or the vigor in the in the plant, um, and so you can breed things into hybrid seeds, like for pest reduction or just for um, quality of seed in in general. Um, and so you will see those; those are also very common. Um, and I think in the effort of trying to de- demystify a lot of things, there's nothing wrong with growing a hybrid seed. We hear it all the time about heirloom and that seems to be kind of like the cream of the crop. Um, but we do both it, um, here at least. And it's just important to know um, we wouldn't be saving a seed necessarily from that to, to pass down or anything like that. But yeah, I think going off of what Mandy just said, if you were to take um, an F1 hybrid jalapeno and pluck it off the plant and bring it indoors and then try to save the seed, you are not going to end up with um, a clone of the mother plant or the source plant. It is, I, it's kind of a silly example, but to me, I feel like hybrids, I picture them like dogs, like golden doodles, right? Like we took a golden retriever and we took a poodle and we had traits of both that we liked. And so the breeder put them together and created the golden doodle. And that doesn't necessarily mean if you take two golden doodles, they're all going to come out as perfect golden doodles. So that is how I sort of remember when I'm opening a seed catalog and I see hybrid. Okay. The seed that I am going to plant is sure going to give me a great jalapeno. It's been bred for that but it's sort of a one and done. That means I'll grow it this year. I can't necessarily save the seeds and expect the same thing to grow next season, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think that, or gosh, I just hope that just in differentiating these two things that it can be helpful because in gardening and homesteading and in general, we're always looking ahead, right? You always look to the next season or the next year for, for whatever reason. So when you're planting things this winter, you know, early spring, and you're looking forward to um, growing them again next year or saving those seeds, you can certainly, like Angela said, save a seed from that jalapeno, that hybrid jalapeno uh, that you grew and that was so prolific and, you know, um, fed so many folks, but then you plant it next year and it might germinate. Then it might give you some weird, funky looking <laughs> jalapeno or something that you're like, I think that I thought this was a jalapeno and it's not, right. or it might not come to fruition. So that's, that's just something, you know, to kind of take in, take into consideration. So what's next? Well, I think real quick, we should jump, um, we should jump down to genetically modified because I think there tends to be a little bit of confusion between hybrid seeds and GMO seeds. So hybrid is when you take, for lack of a better word for this example, two parents to create offspring. GMO is not the same 
as breeding. Okay, genetically modified organism, GMO, means a scientist stood over the DNA of this plant in a lab and reconstructed the essential elements of it in order to create something new. If you open up some of the more, mm, I guess, I guess I'd say gimmicky seed catalogs. I mean, you'll see blue strawberries. I've seen black strawberries. That's not natural. (laughs) So I'm not saying it's unsafe to plant and consume. What I'm saying is that these are items that are that wouldn't naturally be created without the help of a scientist. Yeah. And that doesn't just mean color variation. It means something that is super massive, like, I don't know, a two foot cor- corn cob, you know, or the shape may be unique and sort the of flavor, the flavor. The flavor. Yeah. yeah. Pest and disease resistance. And that's where I think GMO can get controversial is because that's where a lot of people sort of say, okay, well, if you're messing with the plants, pest and disease resistance, you're then sort of influencing mother nature and the ecosystem. So you can read up about that and the pros and cons and all of the controversy behind GMO seeds for yourself. We won't discuss that today. That's not this discussion. What I am saying, though, is that this is very different than hybrid. Hybrid is breeding. GMO is science. Yep. And again, it's just good to know the difference. So not not knocking anybody or, or what have you, but it's, it's very important, like you said, to, to differentiate between those two um, and to know what, what they mean. So just kind of one more big one, right? Open, open pollinated seeds. Yeah. It's open pollinated plants where I guess, you know, the seed and then you get the open pollinated plant that comes from that seed is naturally, it's exactly what it sounds like. They're naturally pollinated by the nature, wind, the bees and, and those pollinators. So you can save seeds from open pollinated plants and plant them the next year. There are some that are a little bit different or some that call that might have a, you know, have to call a little more attention to like corn because you can cross pollinate those types of plants. Same with melons. Um, And you will definitely have a seed that you can save, but it's kind of like you have your own little, blended crop the next year if you're going to grow. So it might be the same situation that we talked about with the hybrids. Um, You might just not get what you think you're going to (laughs) get. Yeah, absolutely. We grow pumpkins, um, a ton of varieties of pumpkins and gourds in a smaller patch than I think what would be ideal for someone who is looking to make sure they had streamlined varieties and nothing cross-pollinated. So I definitely occasionally get a weird blue pumpkin that's been mixed with something that, okay, hey, the Yardale pumpkin should not be that shape. Um, But that doesn't bother me. Um, It's something where I'm not selling the produce. It works for our homestead and I like the variety. Um, But if you're looking for something that's very consistent, from year to year, you would probably just want to plant one type of pumpkin or gourd with quite a bit of space surrounding it. Because if it's wind pollinated or pollinated by the bees, I mean, bees in theory travel up to five miles. So you can see that there's going to be a lot of variability within within your own growing space. Really the only way to get guarantee that something is going to be a perfect clone of its mother plant is to grow it in isolation indoors. And I don't think any of us really have the capacity for that. I don't think any of us are large scale growers with massive greenhouses, right? Right. So just know that if you get variety, that's probably what's happening. It's open pollinated, it's bees and wind, it's mother nature. Yeah. And again, this is just for your information bank so that you know there's nothing wrong with any of the above or any of the below that we've talked about. Um, it's just it's just good to know. Um, so where do we get all these seeds? I mean, there are so many places that you can source seeds from. Um, I have tried pretty much everything. The most expensive to Home Depot. Um, 
and they, they all grow you all. I mean, I think that there are so many different places where you can source these incredible seeds, seed companies in general. Um, it's like Christmas to buy from them. Um, it's, it's so much fun and different companies in different regions of the United States, like we kind of talked about might be better suited for, you know, one of us versus the other, because you take into that climate and things like that. That's just talking about the naturally adapted environment plants or seeds. Um, and then certain companies will also kind of have like their little niche, like a little bit more of a flower seed company, you know, um, maybe some pretty interesting vegetables and, and things like that. Some seed companies are only heirloom. Um, I've sourced from, I've sourced from them all. Um, and, and I, I, I'm happy to say that I don't necessarily think that any place that you buy from, as long as it seems reputable is, is a bad choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to add to the list seed swaps. It's really fun, um, to just sort of geek out like I do and organize a seed swap or participate in one someone else has organized. And essentially what you do is just share your seeds. Um, so that's pretty cool because you can end up growing some things that you may never have picked up out of a magazine or off a shelf at the hardware store. Um, and then, of course, we talked about before saving your own seeds if they're heirloom or if they're open pollinated. Um, so I think if you're looking for a guarantee and you want a specific crop, and really want to make sure that it's going to germinate and grow true, true to what you have in mind, it's best to just buy your own specific seed. If you're in a position where you feel that you don't want any variability, that's okay. Um, I would just recommend buying new seeds every year. Those seed catalogs start coming out usually right around New Year's Day. And when you open up the pages of those catalogs, you are going to see all of the abbreviations and the seed varieties that we just talked about. And there are so many varieties of beans, peas, everything you can imagine. The one thing to keep in mind when browsing through these is you only have so much space. It's so easy to rack up hundreds of dollars. Uh, I'm so guilty. Hundreds of dollars every year on seeds I don't even need. And I just, it's like, I don't know. I just, I black out and I just it's start ordering. It's seeds. exciting. Hundreds. It is exciting. Yeah. You're not alone. Hundreds, yeah, hundreds it's, of it's, dollars. It's so fun. And then you get them in the mail and you're looking at the packets and it's all about like potential and what, what can be right for that growing season. But really ask yourself, okay, what does your grocery store list look like? How many tomatoes do you really go through? Obviously taking into account whether or not you're going to be preserving. Do you really need 12 different types of pole beans. So it's hard to be practical and I'm going to take my own, I'm going to try to take my own advice here, but scale it back. When in doubt, try to scale it back. You can always fill in the gaps by running to the hardware store later and getting what maybe you missed or forgot about. Yeah. And it's also kind of fun to, to connect and, and hopefully, you know, just in, in today's day and age connecting. So maybe I buy something that I spend $10 on a seat of a packet of seeds that I should not have spent $10 on. Um, but they're just kind of a unique plant and I'm, I'm not going to grow 20 of those one, you know, that same thing. So you can share and that's kind of just like the beauty of it. And so fun to, to be able to do that. So yeah, this is, this is getting me so excited for, <laughs> for the spring. Um, I, I can hardly wait. Um, oh, Mandy, real quick. I do want to touch on something before we talk about the specifics, the how to of seed starting. And I want you to answer this specifically because I think this speaks to a lot of people and their growing zones. You know, we talked about seed types. We talked about where to get the seeds. But something that people really need to factor in is the length of their growing season. And Mandy and I already talked in the show notes. We will make sure to put a map for your growing zone. Uh, but on seed packets and in those catalogs, you'll see how many days until the seed germinates, roughly. You'll see um, how many days you can expect the crop to take from germination to maturity. The reason those things are important is if you do not have a long growing season, if you're in a northern climate, 
you're not necessarily going to want to grow some of those pumpkin or gourd varieties that take months and months and months. Now, the reason that I want to bring this up, Mandy specifically, is because she's sort of navigated around that really well with Lufa because it is a long growing season. Yeah. Well, how did you do that? Yeah. I mean, it's just a situation where um, we start these things sometimes like late January, early February. Um, so it, it doesn't matter. We have a greenhouse. Um, we've not always had a greenhouse. So let me tell you, I have had plants in the bathroom. I've had plants downstairs. I've put them on a shelf and, you know, built some light structure and it looks like, you know, a, a child built it, but those plants grew. So it is... <laughs> It is a situation where you can extend your growing season. There's there's a lot of options, not just starting seeds early in the home or in a greenhouse, but you know, out in the garden too. I think we might touch on that just a little bit. But um, those seed packets and those catalogs and things like that, they will date you back to hey, um, this or you know, you look you look up when your um, first and last frost are, and you count backwards. Um, it's just getting, getting on a calendar, um, but a lot of the seed packets will actually give you that information. Um, so for loofah, peppers, certain things like that. Um, and like I said, I think we'll touch on cold crops and what we're going to start first, but you actually start them sometimes when it's snowing outside. Um, and it is so exciting, um, to just have that very first, um, whether it's, in your basement or your bathroom or a greenhouse to just get a plan started. But yes, navigate it around Lufa because Lufa take about 200 days, one, 180. Um, I I would say at least, uh, to grow. And that's a long time. That's a long time. And for those of you who don't know, Mandy's in growing zone five, right? Six A, like right on the cusp. Okay. So for her to be able to have figured out how to work with her growing zone by growing indoors and starting early, um, that does give you some, some flexibility with your crop choices and their dates to maturation. But for somebody who's a beginning gardener, just look at the map that we'll, that we'll link to in the show notes, figure out your growing zone, your first and your last date of frost, and then look at the seeds that you're interested in and figure out what works best for that timeline. Um, real quickly, maybe we should just jump to cold crops, Mandy, because you had touched on that. And those are typically the things to grow first, right? Yeah. So things that can tolerate, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. Cooler crops, cold crops, things that can tolerate cooler temperatures and actually not just tolerate, they thrive in those cooler temperatures. So it would be, um, you know, your, your vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, things like that. Um, peas, not to be confused with beans, because I think that they, I mean, sometimes the seeds look similar and things like that, but one loves heat, one loves cool weather. So things like that, you can actually start, whether you're starting it again, any indoors um, or outdoors. Some of those you can actually put a seed in the ground before it the soil is is warm, um, technically. Um, and those are the things again that are going to kick off your growing season because they they grow better best when it's cool. They do not thrive or love it when it's hot. And um, circling back your seed packets and knowing your hardiness zone and these catalogs that we're all searching through that information will also likely be accessible to you. So you should know when you can start it um, and and the temperatures they best germinate and grow at. Yeah, for sure. Like Mandy said, some things they need to be direct sown, which means planted not in um, a seed starting tray or cell. They need to be put right into the soil. And what's great about some of these cold crops is that right on the packet, it will say, so as soon as the soil is workable. And what that means is you might still have a thin layer of frost on the top portion of the soil, but if you can move it with a spade or a garden trowel and dig your hands into it, essentially, if you can part the soil enough to make a hole and put a seed in there, it's ready. Um, peas and radishes are, for the most part, the first crops to go into the soil in the wintertime as we're moving into spring. 
And I think it's peas that need 45 degrees Fahrenheit. I could be wrong. I think it's 45 or 48. That's the temperature that they need the soil to be, not the air temperature, the soil. And you can easily buy a soil thermometer on Amazon. They're like $10. And that's when I, uh, I, I, I start sowing is when, as soon as my, my soil is that temperature, I put peas in there, I put the radishes and when they sprout, oh my goodness, all the happy dances, because <laughs> it's the first crop. It's, it's life. It's like the green in the middle of the brown winter. And it just makes you feel so happy and so good. Um, but with respect to direct sowing, that's not just for cold crops. There may be things that you can't start indoors that are summer crops. Corn is one of them. It's very finicky uh, because of its root structure. When you plant it in a tray or a pot, it's not going to do well if you transfer it out. More power to you if you did it and you made it work. But for the most part, you need to direct sow some of those things. Pumpkins is another one. Melons, they can be started indoors. You can buy them at a hardware center um, or a nursery. But really, if they had their way, they would be germinating in the ground and growing there to begin with. Um, so that's something to really pay attention to on your seed packets. Your seed packets really are there to help you. They're really good little guides. Yeah. And back to your point about um, just direct direct sow versus starting in, in any type of like a cell or pot or, or homemade starter. And I think that we're going to dive into that next, but it, it's also um, less work, right? Work smarter, not harder. So for the things that you can, that they like that they like it when it's warm and you, you do have two or three months of warm weather that you can just go out to your garden that's already, you know, amended and it's ready. And then you can just put the seed in the ground rather than having to take all that extra work to, you know, start it somewhere and transplant it and have the actual thing in the soil and, and then moving it. It's just a little bit less work, which is always, um, it's a, always a win in, in my book. So it's not just, it's not just the, the certain plants that tolerate it more. It's usually the plants that tolerate it more. It just makes it easier for you. Um, and again, like you said, the seed packets and, and all of that information can be found in, 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 on them typically. So with regard to talking about starting transplants and then kind of direct sowing, and we, you know, barely touch the surface there, but when we are getting ready to, you know, venture into this next gardening season, um, there are just like when we talk about, you know, seed catalogs and where to, where to source seeds from, there are so many different ways that you can start seeds indoors or in a greenhouse. Um, you know, a cell, a pot, like I said, you can make it yourself. You can soil block, you can put it in an eggshell and it can get a little bit overwhelming. There can be a lot of opinions on what works best. Um, I have grown them in all. I think that for, uh, just purpose of today, it's important. I think to choose a good, um, I guess, you know, medium to put it in, to source it in a good container. But I think what's most important is your soil structure, um, that you're putting in whatever said container you're choosing and that just making sure. Um, and I think that we will also, Angela has like a, a seed starting mix. Um, and we can touch on that here in a second, but I think it's important to just make sure and know that your soil that you're choosing or mixing yourself is a mixture of all of that good stuff. So your organic matter, your minerals and things like that, making, making sure that it's not just, you know, dirt that you go dig up from the backyard. <laughs> yeah. We don't want backyard dirt. Um, yeah, yeah, probably want- not going to be super successful. And I think that's a lot of that's a lot of roadblocks for folks. There are so many choices for seeds. There are so many choices for what to put your soil in. So many choices for soil, um, or you know, dirt soil. We we won't go there with with regard to the the different verbiage. But yes, um, like I said, you have a seed starting mix that I think will probably be pretty helpful to people. Yeah, seed starting mix is the key here. You don't want to go by potting mix. So I know that can be confusing because you're thinking, well, I'm starting my seeds in little pots. Why wouldn't I want potting mix? Potting mix is more dense than seed starting mix. When we think about a seed germinating, 
It has those teeny tiny little tender roots and shoots that are coming out. They're incredibly delicate and fragile and they need the the most support we can possibly give them. The best thing that we can do for them is give them very light, fluffy potting mix or excuse me, seed starting mix to work with. And this just helps them to germinate and get established more quickly. The interesting thing about seed starting mix is that there's truly no soil in most mixes. It's typically a mix of perlite, which if you think of like um, like a, a house plant and you see those little white balls in, in the soil, that's what perlite is. It's, it's actually volcanic glass, but it helps with drainage and aeration. And then you also have vermiculite, which is essentially a mineral and that's how that helps with water absorption. And then often there's sphagnum peat moss, which helps to retain moisture. And the reason that we don't have true dirt or soil in a seed starting mix is because seed starting mix is light and fluffy and all of the nutrients that the seed needs for the first couple of weeks of life is already in the seed itself. So that's why oftentimes you'll read a seed packet or read about planting a seed and it will say, don't fertilize until the first true set of leaves appear or don't fertilize for several weeks because you're going to give too much of a good thing. The seed is already equipped with all of the nutrients and minerals it needs to sprout from the time it's a seed to when it gets its first true set of leaves. So that's why we use seed starting mix. It's light, it's fluffy, it retains moisture. But in addition to that, I think we need to talk about heat and light, because I think those are just as pivotal for getting your seeds going. Yeah, I I mean, the most pivotal two things. Um, so before we jump there, I want to I, I want to circle back to um, what you were talking about, you know, the light and fluffy, but I think that before we talk about heat and light, because that's kind of after we've, we've planted the seed, we should talk about the different, um, you know, pots, things like that, the different, not planting mediums, but the actual structures that we put these seeds in. I kind of briefly touched on it. What I just want to know what you do, what you have, um, you know, grown with success and what you, you know, do, do from year to year. Sure. Um, I use the plastic cell trays. Um, usually they're square or you can get them in a hexagon shape. Um, you can get them in varying sizes. I just sort of get whatever is available um, at the hardware store or even online because typically when seed starting time rolls around, everybody's buying all the supplies at the same time. So I'm not too picky about the shape or depth of my seed cells. What is pivotal to me is that they come with a drainage tray or a watering tray to put underneath the cells, which allows me to water the tray rather, rather than pour water directly on the top of the seed cells. Because if you've ever started a seed before, and put fresh uh, potty mix in there, you know that all of, excuse me, seed starting mix in there, you probably experience where all of a sudden you sprinkle water on it and all of the seed starting mix runs off the, the tray to the side. And it's so irritating because especially if you have a shallowly planted seed, you're like, oh my God, my work is, is done. So I think it's important to have that that watering tray. So I prefer plastic pods or the plastic cells. I reuse them from year to year. I've tried, um, I don't want to say that they're burlap, but they're like a recyclable fiber yeah, like pot. The, the biodegradable ones. Yeah. You I find not, them a lot at you, like- you use your, those? Uh, no, you find them a lot at like your big hardware stores and some- some actually you can buy transplants that are planted in those and it will tell you that you can just plant the whole thing. Sometimes they'll have plastic around it and you can just plant the whole yeah. thing. I don't personally find that they actually bio, that they break down fully. Um, and they're, yeah, you know, to each their own and that's certainly easier. Um, and I think it probably, you know, might, have some variations with how active or just, you know, nutrient dense, uh, everybody's individual soil or growing space is. Um, I would say that ours is very active in a very healthy soil, um, out there in the garden. And I don't find that they break down. So uh, I just don't want that 
in, in the area next year. So, but that is an option and a lot of folks do it and you will see them. They're very, very popular. I've also done the plastic. Um, I do do the plastic and reuse them. So it's a great way to not have to continuously buy new things. Um, but we also soil block, um, which is kind of like a, I guess, new popular thing, you know, or I guess trendy thing that you started to see a few years ago. Um, but it works. Um, it really does work. So what's the trick? Because, well, I know the trick now because you, you're, you are my helpline and I had you walk me through it multiple times, but so many people say, I tried soil blocking, it falls apart. So yeah. what's the trick to keeping them together when you're making them? I think it has to do with what um, seed starting mix you're using. So a lot of people will buy the, with, with mixing your own, it should work. And it's like, um, it's like, you know, making sourdough and you want it to be that like specific hydration. Otherwise it's super sticky. So you have to kind of just play with it. Um, good news about soil blocking. If you put too much water, just go ahead and put some more seed starting mix in there and just get that even ratio. But a lot of failures I think happen when we're going and we're buying like a potting soil or maybe something that's not super light and fluffy and has like bigger, um, for lack of a better word, chunks of whatever it is in, in that soil or, you know, quote unquote seed starting mix, that's not going to stay together super well. Um, and so it all just has to do with the, the medium that you're planting in. And the good thing about soil blocking is, um, well, you just get like a tool and it literally is a, 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 like a mechanism where you make blocks of soil and um, they come in different sizes. They come in like super tall. So if, if you don't want to hurt your back and, and all, so it's reusable. So that's obviously great. They're not super pricey and you can use them for years and years. Um, but I did an experiment. I think when I first started soil blocking, when it was, when it was kind of trendy and I wanted to see growing in just like a plastic, um, you know, reusable tray versus a soil block and all the plants grew, but, and they, you know, grew to harvest and we ate from them. But in the earlier um, days of the plant's life, these plants or the seeds that I started in the soil blocks were so much healthier. Um, the side-by-side -side comparison was just insane. And like I said, we got harvest from, you know, both types of seeds started plants, but it's just the oxygen and the air and things like that. When you soil block it, they're just out there. Um, and they have, the roots have more space to grow. So it's almost like direct sowing them. Um, but you're not. Um, and so it's, it's a way to kind of get a head start. Uh, I encourage everybody to try. I think it's just so much fun. Uh, they kind of look like brownies. Um, <laughs> Um, but, but they're not. So, I mean, I wouldn't, but you could probably trick somebody. Um, but yeah, so that's another, another way to do it. I guess the whole point is, and gosh, what else you can, you can grow seeds in eggshells. Obviously you'd have to move those pretty quickly. Eggshells are not very big. A lot of, um, when it comes to reusable or biodegradable, you can make newspaper pots. Newspaper pots do break down in your garden a lot better than those, um, store-bought, you know, biodegradable, you know, peat looking ones, but there are so many choices. I think that's the point here. Um, and experiment, play around with it. Gardening and seed starting and growing your own food and providing for your family in this kind of way. It's all big experiment and you have totally. to figure out what, what, what works best for you. Um, I think real quick, one question I tend to get from a lot of people during seed starting season is why wouldn't I just start my seeds in like three or four inch pots? Why do I need to start them in a seed tray? For me, the answer lies within space mm -hmm. restrictions. Um, I can start, depending on the size of the seed tray, 72 upward plants in one tray. If I were to do that in 72, four inch pots. That's a lot of space. So yeah, granted, it's going to save me a lot of work from potting up, which essentially just means I'm moving the started plant from its smaller home to a bigger one. So its roots can spread out and it continue to grow until I get it in the garden. 
But I think the thing to just think about is how much space you have, whether that be a greenhouse, a tabletop, a windowsill. Um, keep that in mind because depending on what you're starting and money, yes, what you're, how long your plants are going to be in there and what you're using as your vessel, whether it be a seed tray or pots, that comes into play. Those logistics are something to absolutely keep in mind. If you can't crowd 80 plants underneath one grow light, a seed tray might be a more feasible option for those 80 plants. Um, so yeah. yeah, just think about space. And it all goes back to timing too. And you said money. So if you're doing those in three or four inch pots, you have to have that much more seed starting mix. And then yes, in theory, you're going to transfer that to your garden or transplant that into your garden, but you should already have enough soil in your garden. So you shouldn't need, you know, so it, 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 it's a little bit wasteful. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, like Angela said, I mean, it, it, it's better in, to just do it in, in smaller areas, but it also goes back to timing. So your seed packets and those catalogs will tell you, Hey, and I'm guilty of this, just like I'm guilty of spending hundreds of dollars, um, on seeds every year. Um, I am guilty about starting a little bit too soon sometimes. And that's when you are going to, um, and incur a little bit more work. You're going to have to, you know, pot up like Angela was saying. So, you can start small if you have if if you followed the directions. Don't get so eager. Don't start your tomatoes like me. I I always want to start my tomatoes when I start my broccoli, and that is just like eight weeks too soon. Um, but I have the itch. I've started. But if you wait, then you don't have to. Um, then it's not it's not more work. Work smarter, not harder. Yes. Yes. Um, so you, you know, you touched earlier and I think that we should, um, real quickly before we wrap up, talk about just the lighting options and the grow mats and things like that for when we've, we've sourced all of our seeds and started them and, and we're getting, you know, rocking and rolling. Um, again, same thing that we talk about often. There are so many options. Um, you can buy heat mat trays you can buy you know plant uv lights pretty much everywhere there are so many options um you can also diy some of this stuff which is so fun and i think just circling back to the whole you know purpose of this lifestyle but it they they're important I, I, I guess is the most important thing to to touch on the, your plant does need heat and your plant does need, or your seed needs heat and needs light to germinate. Um, doesn't need to be fancy. What do you use? Well, my greenhouse is heated. It's right off of my living room. It's attached to the house. Yeah, and so dream. it is a dream. It's amazing. <laughs> um, especially during the winter months, I can just look in there, walk in there and it's all green. So I don't, I don't really have to go to great lengths to heat my, my seed trays. Um, for some things that really need, you know, higher than 68 degrees Fahrenheit to germinate, we're talking like peppers, tomatoes, and I want to get a head start. I will use just um, a heat mat, something that you can roll up when you're not using it. You roll it out when you need it you plug it in and you're good to go. I will say, though, after the plants have germinated, you can retire the heat mat. Uh, many folks keep that on for the duration of the time the seed and seedling are in the house or in the greenhouse. You don't need to do that. Um, there's no benefit to it. Um, really, it's just for germination purposes. But yeah. Mandy uh, yeah. made her own. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, gosh, um, we and I'm happy to kind of throw something up either on social media or I can put it maybe in the, the notes. Um, we do uh, have how you, how we built it um, on our blog, on the website, but we use scrap lumber. I think just a part of, um, you know, some two by fours and some plywood. And then we kind of intertwined in like um, a zigzag or S shape throughout the whole thing um tube lighting so like the like christmas lights old christmas lights or tube lighting this so you should be able to get it any time of the year now or the first of the year is really when they're going to go on sale after christmas um doesn't matter the color um ours is blue um and it's just <laughs> i mean so it's I, um we didn't put blue lights on our house our neighbor gifted them to me but um <laughs> I don't know why I felt like I needed to tell you all that, but, and if you do put blue lights on your house, that's fine. Um, but 
the lights will, I mean, it's just like when you touch any, any light bulb or even just your tiny Christmas lights, they put off just a small amount of heat, not enough to burn your fingers or burn anything or start a fire. Um, but that provides enough heat for the germination for those seeds. Um, you know, heat, heat mats, when you grow, I guess, you know, at our capacity are really, you know, if you're a family of four and you want to try and, you know, you want to try and grow um, ample food to replace your grocery store, it, it, it is quite a bit of seed starting sometimes, which is, um, it can get pricey. And so that's just another option um, if you don't, you know, have the, you know, capability or capacity to buy a whole bunch of, of seed mats. And we only have one. It's, I don't, it's, it's rather large, but you can move your, um, starting trays around so i'll have some on there when it's you know kind of do um musical chairs and then mm -hmm. the ones that germinate we take off and then replace so tons of options uh, i think what's most important again is um certain certain seeds really do thrive and love that heat so that soil temperature um to germinate some truthfully need it um, and that can be like the missing link between, you know, your germination or not, um, germinating and then water, um, Angel kind of touched on it. Watering from below is just, I mean, it's kind of a good practice to just to get into anyway. So a, you're not washing away this tiny little lettuce seed or tiny little broccoli seed. And they're usually the same color as your, um, seeds already mix and so then it's gone um or you get some random plant growing out the side of a uh, something because the seed washed away um so watering from below is is best and then light um so we don't do any artificial lighting in our greenhouse um so it's just the 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 natural daylight of you know just the the time of the year when we did grow inside before the greenhouse, you can use, and I know you use like UV lights and things like that and darker corners of your greenhouse or just mm -hmm. for certain times of the day. And like we said, there are so many places to buy them, you know, Amazon Lowe's, most seed starting, or I guess seed companies, I should say, will potentially have some, um, you can buy just plant bulbs, um, like literally like a regular light bulb and put it in a lamp and hang it over your seeds. So it doesn't have to be again, super fancy. It's all just remembering that your seeds need those things. So however you can give them that, um, you should have success. Yeah. So that's exactly what I do is I just went out and bought swag lights, which are the light fixtures you plug into the wall meant to be decorative. And I hung those in my greenhouse and I don't have um, fully exposed ceilings and walls like Mandy does in her greenhouse situation because mine is attached to the house. Um, I'm limited in some areas with regard to how much light gets in. So I plug in these swag lights and just at the hardware store, I think it's GE that makes them. They are nine watt energy efficient plant bulbs. And so they can be on all day if I need them to be, turn them off at night or put them on a timer, whatever works for you. And they're totally energy efficient. But the thing that I like about those bulbs the most is that they're balanced with blue and red UV light rays. So Mandy mentioned before that her, her rope lighting, her lighting that I envisioned should be like hooked up to a bass. So when she plays music underneath her <laughs> seed mats, it's like throbbing with the bass. I think that's what we need to see as an improvement. Um, but um, that's not the blue light that I'm talking about. You can't just hang like a blue light bulb. It has to be UV light. Blue UV light helps with chlorophyll production in the plant. So that's really going to help create strong, sturdy stems and help with foliage. Red UV light, um, is going to help those seedlings with fruit and flower production. It also helps a lot with germination. Right when it germinates, it helps those roots to get established. So if you can find something that's balanced, um, you're really giving your plants the best shot possible to have a healthy start and survive. Um, the other thing about lighting is you don't just want to hang it up on the ceiling and then just have it sort of broadcast light in all directions. 
the plants really need direct light, strong light. And no matter how hard we try, we can never really mimic the strength of the sun's rays. So you want to lower your lights to just six inches to eight inches directly above the top of the seed tray or whatever vessel you're using to grow your seedlings in. And the reason it needs to be so close is because when the seed germinates, it's going to stretch towards the light. And the farther away the light is, the more those plants are going to stretch. And then they get what we call, they get leggy. And when they're leggy, they're weak. They're kind of falling all over. And it's really just not setting the plant up for success, especially when it comes to transplanting it outside. So keep the lighting low, keep it balanced if possible. Try to find something energy efficient if that's important to you. But I think that concludes light, heat, and water. And I think the last thing maybe just to touch on is, and I said this in the beginning, there's no shame in buying a seedling. All of this is a lot of work. You need space. Um, you're going to have to take your budget into consideration for sourcing seeds, getting supplies, having enough pots or seed trays to start them in and then pot up into. Um, I mean, what's your schedule like? If you plan to travel, how are you going to take care of seedlings and keep them hydrated? Um, what about work? You know, it's just a lot of labor. It's labor intensive to start seedlings, um, to start seeds, and then to have to transplant them later, there's problems that arise. One of them is called dampening off, where no, you did everything right, and some just don't make it, and they die off. So there is no shame in just buying a seedling already started for you and eliminating some of that responsibility. But I think Mandy agrees that it's pretty cool to give yourself a lot of variety, a lot of different plants you never knew or would never find at a nursery or hardware store, and be able to take that from zero to 100 and harvest from it in the garden. That That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it's just prideful. Um, it, that That's all it is. I mean, it, it, it's giving you giving yourself and your family variety and things like that. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think it's a good, a good note to go out on. There's no shame in it. I will tell you that we do it um, usually every year, if I'm honest. Um, and that's okay. Um, so with that, we are so so overjoyed that you joined us today and hopefully this helps and happy seed shopping and we will throw up that those few things in show notes and um we will talk to you all later thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the homestead education podcast any relevant material will be put in the show notes we hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button for more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.